Welcome to Keeping in Sight, a Santa Fe General Medicine's medical podcast dedicated to narrowing the gap on healthcare disparities. Despite having a lower reported prevalence of atrial fibrillation, contemporary data suggests that underrepresented racial and ethnic populations experience disparities in disease treatment and outcomes. Santa Fe MSL co-hosts Delilah Masick and Teresa Russell have a discussion with Dr. Larry R. Jackson II to explore these disparities and identify tangible actions that our listeners can implement to promote health equity. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Larry R. Jackson II. He is a clinical cardiac electrophysiologist with Duke Health, an associate professor of medicine at Duke University, and a member in the Duke Clinical Research Institute. Dr. Jackson has made significant research contributions related to racial and ethnic differences in arrhythmia care, and he is passionate about identifying opportunities to address these gaps. Thank you so much for joining us today. Teresa, Delilah, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm so pleased to be here today. And we're really excited to have you. Dr. Jackson, you're very well published when it comes to addressing disparities in atrial fibrillation management. But you're also the recipient of an EHA Career Development Award focused on analyzing racial and ethnic differences in rhythm control for atrial fibrillation. We would love to hear how your passion for health equity has really led you to where you are today. Well, thank you for the question. And, you know, I would let our audience know I've always had an interest in medicine, but this idea around health equity and arrhythmia care and also equity, diversity, and inclusion work, it's really a family affair. My sisters and my mother are working at the intersection of equity and literacy when it comes to uh, racial and ethnic minoritized school grade children. My father was a civil rights lawyer, so did a lot of work with sort of civil justice. And so, For me, you know, it's a family affair. It's about doing what's right for these communities that are underserved and marginalized. Thank you so much for sharing your story and giving our listeners some insight into where your passion for this topic comes from. We're going to start off today's discussion by talking about symptom recognition in atrial fibrillation. You co-authored an article in the American Heart Journal that used the Orbit Registry and concluded that Compared to white and Hispanic patients, Black patients had an overall higher AFib symptom burden and a lower quality of life. Why do you believe there are differences in AFib symptoms across racial and ethnic groups? Well, I would say the first iteration of the Outcomes Registry for Better Informed Treatment of Atrial Fibrillation documented that Black individuals with atrial fibrillation, you know, had more symptoms. And and it wasn't just one or two. There was more lightheadedness, more dizziness, more exercise intolerance, actually more chest pain and more. And so we have to remember that that study, uh, while sort of giving us some sentinel findings, only included 493 Black participants out of a study of a little under 10,000, so about 5%. So I I think the data is hypothesis-guiding. I think it's sort of hypothesis-driving. I would say Black individuals, AFib in that study also had sort of a poor quality of life, which goes together with increased symptom burden. Unfortunately, I think it's the only study to date of its kind. So without more studies validating those findings, without more studies understanding quality of life and symptom and other racial and ethnic minoritized populations, it's a little hard to understand why we sort of found that trend in that particular study. 
We know that in general, Blacks with AFib tend to be younger, and we know younger populations with AFib tend to be more symptomatic. So maybe we're just seeing sort of a phenomenon at the intersection of race and age where Blacks are more likely to be symptomatic and younger with atrial fibrillation. But I think ultimately we need more work in that specific realm to get a better understanding of what's driving that finding. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And really, you know, putting age and sex together, there's just so many confounding variables when we do look at data like that. But we had Dr. Keith Ferdinand come on episode one, and he talked about this AFib double paradox in which, you know, Black patients have this higher burden of risk factors beyond symptoms. However, the reported literature showed a lower reported incidence and prevalence of atrial fibrillation. Dr. Jackson, are there any data that challenge this finding? It's hard to challenge anything that the great Keith Ferdinand says. Uh, he's a great friend and mentor and is a great sponsor for me. But when we talk about the AFib paradox, a lot of you articulated it beautifully. Blacks, for example, cluster an increased number of risk factors associated with AFib, but study after study has suggested that there's a lowered incidence and prevalence of AFib in Black populations. One study comes to mind by Susan Heckbert and colleagues looking at data from the MESA cohort study. And the findings would suggest if you were specifically looking at clinically detected AFib, AFib that is detected by standard symptoms coming to the office, getting an EKG, that the AFib paradox still holds in that setting. Once again, this is clinically detected AFib. But in this MESA cohort from the Heckbert study, when they looked at atrial fibrillation detected by ambulatory monitoring, they really saw no difference as a function of race and ethnicity in the incidence and prevalence. Now, both strategies, clinical detection and ambulatory monitoring detection of AFib, are both fraught sort of with not necessarily errors, but their own limitations, right? You can monitor somebody for two weeks as they did in this study and not catch any episodes of AFib due to the paroxysmal nature of AFib. Clinical symptoms are hard because some people don't have any symptoms with AFib to begin with. I think once again, a study that has us thinking that, hey, what's really driving the AFib detection as a function of race and ethnicity? How are we ascertaining that? Is there ascertainment bias in the clinical detection or even the ambulatory monitoring detection of AFib? So once again, another hypothesis-driving study with very interesting findings. Those are really some interesting findings, especially in the growing interest in the cardiology community surrounding wearables and device detection of atrial fibrillation and other arrhythmias. We previously discussed that minoritized populations with AFib experience higher symptom burden. However, the literature suggests that a rate control strategy is often preferentially used in Black and Hispanic patients, while rhythm control strategy with antiarrhythmic drugs or ablation is more often used in white patients. What are your thoughts on why this may be? A real complex issue and a great question, Teresa. We saw this in the Orbit Registry, which we previously spoke about. There's a great study by Prashant Bave published in Heart Rhythm using data from Medicare and over 500,000 patients where not only Blacks, but women were less likely to get rhythm control and preferentially more likely to get rate control. I think it's complex. And I think really this speaks to the heart of my American Heart Association grant, where we're trying to use qualitative research interviewing patients, focus groups, and surveys to really understand what are the drivers, what are the barriers, what are the facilitators towards somebody getting rhythm control versus rate control, somebody getting rate control versus rhythm control. My personal opinion is what we are going to find is that there are probably patient-related factors and clinician-related factors and how those intersect 
that are probably driving these specific findings. Implicit bias may also be a play. If we think about health literacy and knowledge, based on the, both on the patient side and the clinician side, those two things could be at play in, in terms of understanding the efficacy, the risk and benefits of those treatments. Social determinants of health may contribute and that, hey, your inability to get to an electrophysiologist may prevent you from knowing, understanding, gaining knowledge and insight about rhythm control strategies. So I think it's a very mixed bag of the potential drivers into why we're seeing those phenomena. But I, I'm hopeful that more qualitative work that we're doing on the research end will help elucidate some of those differences. I'm glad you brought up the social determinants of health, because I feel like we need to constantly remind each other that, you know, it's not just what's written in the chart. It goes much, much more than that. Diving deeper into this rhythm control strategy conversation that we started, you know, most listeners are familiar with the Cabana trial. A North America postdoc analysis of this trial demonstrated that less than 10% of the trial included racial or ethnic minoritized populations. And within that group, the primary event rates in the catheter ablation arm were no different. However, minoritized patients randomized to drug therapy had an almost threefold higher event rate. We know that all postdoc analyses have their inherent limitations, but what's your take on why this may be? Yeah, great study, not only for its hypothesizing, generating findings, but also done by my mentor. So I really like that study, but clearly some limitations, you know, not necessarily a pre-specified analysis, only including the North American cohort given the locations that specifically collected race and ethnicity data, small patient sample size, the sort of aggregation of racial and ethnic groups, which is challenging. But if we look at those findings, Delilah and Teresa, very interesting in that on the surface, it would suggest that those racial and ethnic minoritized populations randomized to catheter ablation did better. And I still think the, the jury is out on that. What we did see in that study is that the primary driver and the difference in event rates Meaning specifically, if we look at those minoritized populations versus not, it was antirhythmic drugs. So those minoritized populations on antirhythmic drugs had higher event rates of the composite outcome, all-cause mortality, disabling stroke, cardiac arrest, serious bleeding. So it was this idea of antirhythmic drugs potentially being worse than racial and ethnic minoritized populations that was the driver of those event rates. That's a very nuanced sort of analysis of that trial that most people are not necessarily digging into deep enough to understand. And so that would be my big takeaway from this trial. What are antirhythmic drugs doing? How are they faring in racial and ethnic minoritized populations? Thanks so much for the really thoughtful insights about the Cabana trial. I think, you know, what you said really just speaks to critically thinking about the included populations that are being assessed in a study when we're applying the conclusions from trial. Speaking of that, so we've highlighted some data surrounding disparities in treatment and outcomes, but historically there's been really limited diversity in atrial fibrillation research. Given the significant underreporting and underrepresentation of minoritized populations, how can you extrapolate data assessing rate or rhythm control interventions to these populations? Well, I think it becomes difficult. And on, on the one hand, we think, you know, we're all more similar than sort of dissimilar as sort of human beings. But we know that the, the genetics and genetics leads to ancestry. We know these things really can affect how therapeutics work in different populations. We, we've seen that with oriented coagulants such as warfarin. We've seen that with beta blockers, which are used. To... So it matters. I think, you know, it, it's hard. Patients are really beginning to ask, how many people look like me in this trial? 
are the results of these trials, specifically atrial fibrillation trials, are they generalizable? Do the findings apply to me? And I think we have to be honest with ourselves that most of the time, these trials are not broadly representative of the heterogeneity that we have in our population, specifically the U.S. population. And so that speaks to our need to diversify trials with heterogeneous populations. And I think clinicians, I think patients, I think more importantly, health systems, policymakers, industry, and biotech are really beginning to understand that this is an important issue. It's not necessarily an easy issue to solve. We are going to not only achieve health equity, but achieve the best care for our patient population with abnormal heart rhythm conditions. Yeah, I love how you summarize that. You know, there's really limited studies assessing these outcomes in diverse populations. So given that, it sounds like clinicians really need to use an individualized patient-centered approach when dealing with, you know, whether it be atrial fibrillation or another abnormal heart arrhythmia. A recurring message among all guests on this podcast includes the importance of engaging patients in shared decision-making, really to build trust and then improve health outcomes. Dr. Jackson, as an electrophysiologist, how do you approach shared decision-making conversations surrounding rhythm control with your patients? Well, Delilah, it's a, it's a great question. My approach is, is sort of very matter-of-fact, so to speak. I, I don't use any specific tool per se, although I have experimented with all of them. But, you know, in the part of my history taking and counseling and conversation, we, you know, we have a dedicated time where it's very important for me to understand a patient's preferences and values regarding procedural or pharmacologic rhythm control. I will gently walk through the examples of antiarrhythmic drugs, gently counsel and, and communicate in a way that patients can understand about the risk and benefits of procedural rhythm control therapy. And I think this way, the patients are understanding things on a level which they can process information with them and their support system. I can begin to understand patient preferences and values that may steer the conversation into a particular treatment strategy that is more favorable to the patient. I think ultimately patients just want their concerns, their comments, they want to be heard. They want what they say to matter and to be valued. Some patients want you to make the decision for them, and that's okay. Some do not. It's all about being very intentional, very specific, having dedicated time for shared decision-making. It may lengthen the, the clinical encounter a couple of minutes, but I think it's important if we are ultimately doing what's in the best interest of the patient specifically. I love that you really put so much thought and effort into having individualized patient-centered discussions. Are there any resources or tools that you might be able to share with our listeners that could potentially help them having conversations with patients about AFib treatment options? Yes, there are. And like I stated, you know, several of these tools I've experimented with. Uh, there's a health-wise shared decision-making tool, not only on stroke reduction therapies, but also on catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation. The American College of Cardiology has a CardioSmart shared decision-making tool, once again, for atrial fibrillation and oriented coagulation. No tool is perfect. Most of these tools have not necessarily been studied in a very rigorous scientific fashion to understand if they're feasible, acceptable. We know that most tools in this space don't necessarily change hard clinical outcomes. I'm not saying that's the only outcome that is important or relevant. But we do have newer tools on the horizon that may help change that paradigm. So there are some tools out there, but we have to recognize while there are some benefits and they may help with communication, there's some limitations as well. Thanks for that. Our listeners always love, you know, actionable items they could take away from the podcast. Be sure to check out that episode description for all the links. 
But, you know, we've covered a lot so far. So we've talked about diagnosis. We've talked about symptoms, management, and outcomes. So let's take a few minutes to explore how clinicians can help address disparities in their clinical practice. I want to bring up a practice guideline that you co-authored, which was published in Heart Rhythm Journal, that really outlined a call to action for clinicians to address racial and ethnic disparities in arrhythmia care. So give us the spark notes. What are the priority actions that clinicians can implement to really help bridge these gaps and move towards health equity? Yeah, I think think one issue is sort of communication, and it's not only a a gentle communication and and language and and numbers that patients can understand, but really communicating to our racial and ethnic minoritized populations with AFib that there are differences in incidence, differences in prevalence, differences in outcomes. And those differences should be communicated because it may affect how patients in these groups make decisions about the type of treatments that are offered. Another thing I think it is important is knowledge and health literacy. And I think that's relevant to not only patients and and clinicians. Clinicians must stay up to date and relevant with newer literature and new treatments and outcomes in different populations. We have a sort of an epidemic burden of atrial fibrillation. So we know, unfortunately, the the burden of treating or at least talking to our patients with AFib will go to primary care providers as well as general cardiologists as there's probably not enough electrophysiologists to tackle that burden. So I think knowledge and health literacy along the continuum of clinicians and care teams is important. We spoke earlier about social determinants of health, and I think that's a sort of a newer term and something that's getting a lot of well-needed visibility in all aspects of a sort of medical care. But it's particularly important, I think, in the management of abnormal heart rhythm conditions Where you live matters, your nutrition, your education, your social community, your neighborhood, your physical interactions, all that matters in terms of treating in an optimal fashion abnormal heart rhythm conditions such as atrial fibrillation. And lastly, I'll say that the efforts at equity, diversity, inclusion, and we spoke to some of this, diversifying clinical trial enrollment, expanding sort of the scope of of publications around health equity, around DEI. We can only do that if gatekeepers such as EP journal editors are, are willing to go outside the norm and publish inquiries into health equity and DEI. So those would be four quick take homes that I would provide the audience of how that call to action piece can really translate into on-the-ground actionable items that clinicians can do, also patients can embark upon to really help us reach this goal of equity and arrhythmia care. Dr. Jackson, with there being several different avenues and action items for clinicians to consider in moving towards health equity in their practice, I wanted to hone in a little bit deeper about your comments about clinical trial enrollment diversification. We talked earlier that minoritized populations have historically been underrepresented in clinical trials. Is there any advice that you could offer to investigators or research teams to help them bridge this gap in their practices? Great question, Teresa, and I think it requires a deliberative approach, right? Are we pre-specifying analysis focused on women, focused on racial and ethnic minoritized groups, focused on other marginalized populations before the trial even gets underway, right? What is the composition and how are we creating our steering committees? How, what is the composition of our sort of trial committees and our executive committees? Are they diverse and heterogeneous to bring a diversity of thought and opinion to the table where you're more likely to, hey, 
we've got a condition such as heart failure. We've got a condition such as atrial fibrillation. We know racial and ethnic groups preferentially have both of these conditions, specifically heart failure and do worse with atrial fibrillation. We need thought leaders on our committees that really understand this and, and can really communicate this to other trial infrastructure that, hey, this is an important group to study in the context of larger clinical trials. You know, this is difficult stuff. But I think as we move to a place where the country is becoming more heterogeneous and diverse, you know, it's going to be increasingly important to show and demonstrate results specifically around therapeutics from AFib in a broad landscape across many different populations of individuals. Those are great. And I really think people can take something away from what you just said. Let's talk about the patient side. Historically, mistrust may be a contributing factor in clinical trial enrollment. How can physicians take that a step further and help build trust surrounding trial participation? Yeah, we've spoken a lot about communication, and I'm not here to say mistrust doesn't still exist because patients do talk about it, but I think it's about communicating the benefits of why trial participation, specifically for marginalized populations, is so important. And I think we have to be, once again, intentional in understanding that, hey, we know that racial and ethnic groups with atrial fibrillation, for example, has worse outcomes. We are not going to move that needle without you know, tangible participation from these groups. We have to explain to them why it is important. What's the reciprocity for you participating in this study and how your participation may affect long-term outcomes in a positive way as we begin to understand more about what AFib looks like in these marginalized populations. And I think to do that, we have to work with communities. We have to invest in communities, right? That's that reciprocity again to understand and to really articulate to them why it's important that we diversify our trials to understand how therapeutics, safety and benefit of these therapeutics efficacy, how these things are playing out across a broad landscape of populations. So I think we've got to make it easier from a research protocol side for these marginalized populations to participate. Our clinical research teams have to be diverse and that when they are able to reach out, we're not just having having one group or particular group of persons speaking to marginalized populations. We have to have a diversity in our clinical teams and our research teams, dialing down the mistrust, improving the communication, and getting more heterogeneous populations in our trials. Those are all really great suggestions. And you know, hopefully our listeners can walk away with some actionable steps that they can bring back to their practices and help us move towards greater diversity in, in clinical trial enrollment. I know we've covered a lot of information today. Dr. Jackson, what are the two most important points you want our listeners to take away from today's conversation? Yeah, I think we focused a lot on race and ethnicity. But let's, let's remember that health equity encompasses you know, gender and sex, um, age, rural and urban, race and ethnicity, participants, patients, individuals who may be immigrants of our country or not necessarily citizens. So, you know, all of these groups are affected by their own social and structural and environmental factors that may be leading to differential care with respect to atrial fibrillation and other atrial arrhythmias. So I think we have to be cognizant of all of these groups, all of these potential interactions that we're really going to make a difference and change the needle. And I think the second point that clinicians are so important in this battle for health equity, I think we have to ensure that we are communicating in a way and patients understand the therapies that we are offering. We have a role to play in, in helping our patients improve their own knowledge and health literacy. I think we have to think about and check our own implicit biases at the door. That may require training. That may require more than a one-time training. 
I think we also have to embrace this idea that we as clinicians, we're the driving force. We are the intersection between patients and the health systems. And so I think the onus is on us to really play our part, do our role, so to speak, interacting with the, with our patients in a way that sort of minimizes biases, improves communication, and begins to move the needle in terms of equitable care. Thank you so much for that. I think we've had a really great discussion today about overcoming disparities in atrial fibrillation management. On a lighter note before we close, do you have any fun passions or interests that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, for sure. I'm a, I love to travel. I've been to over 45 countries. Uh, Japan was my most recent in July 2023. A big wine enthusiast of Bordeaux and Rioja wines and love to read science fiction and fantasy and love to exercise. So those are the things that sort of keep me sane and ready to fight for our patients. <laughs> I love that so much, but thanks for sharing. It's always nice to get that behind the scenes of, you know, who we're really talking to today. Dr. Jackson, thanks so much for the valuable insights you provided today. Trust and I enjoyed discussing disparities in the management of atrial fibrillation and really learning from your experience. Listeners, be sure to click on the episode description for links to references and resources to support your efforts in tackling health disparities. Thanks again for tuning in and stay tuned for our next episode discussing disparities in atrial fibrillation from that patient perspective. 